So we got a couple of crazy conventions going on. I'm looking forward to the one that's rolling out this week. But I was thinking, or or rather you were, you were thinking like, it's it'd be nice to like think of some nice things that are going on in these uh, uh, apparently apocalyptic times that we have uh, as, as being portrayed. And, you know, there's a, there's a couple of like uh, news items, I think, that will go over th- that are related to it. But mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's a uh, – and I was actually visiting with someone last week, uh, just a, a regular, I don't know, Fortune 500-type company. And I see this over and over again that there's uh, – I, I think maybe there's like a, a five- or ten-year lag on like exciting new technology sort of like go, getting, getting uh, uh, sucked up by normal companies that affect us all that we all use. And they're all, uh, they're all like looking to rewrite their software and make better software. So that's like a very small thing to be uh, cheery about. But I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, all the software we deal with from, from companies and governments being much improved and sort of modernized, if you will. At least that's having right. like a, a mobile interface that's sane. Like I was just, I'm, I'm going on a flight later today. And, uh, you know, one of the things I take for granted now, I fly on American Airlines, is like you can just basically like check in on your phone and like get a little mobile thing that integrates with the, uh, the wallet on your iPhone. And it all like, it all works. It's kind of crazy. And it even like, I've noticed they've added something that tells you like the time you should leave to go to the airport. So there's, <laughs> right. there's like, Clearly, someone's paying attention to like what would make Cote's life's better. Like that's uh, which is nice. It's no, th- it's things a, are panning on, out on a whiteboard somewhere. Yeah, I mean, we can, you know, feel like the end times are near, but at the same time, it's easy to take a step back. And like you said, like even just travel, ignore the TSA part. You know, from a <laughs> from a technology perspective, that's right. That you know, when I have to actually have to get a printed ticket, you know, I just. It's shocking that now I can just have a little barcode. I can change my seats, and those little luxuries are nice. Or even just, you know, I was thinking about this morning. I mean, you and I are sitting here talking on a podcast, separated by by fifteen hundred lonely miles at least, and that, you know, in the drop of a hat, you and I could talk to anybody around the world with no, virtually no lag and almost no cost. Like that is insane if you go back even fifteen twenty years. So a lot of crazy awesome stuff in tech that's empowering, and and the world itself is actually a pretty awesome place despite occasional blips of madness. Yeah, there, there's there's a largesse of productivity available if you can uh, snatch it up and figure out what to do with it. Which is it? Like I was uh, I was in Toronto last week, and uh, it's easy it's easy to forget that like you've got to go over the border, and uh, and and in, t- in the Toronto airport, it's really weird. Like they have. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it's not weird, bad. It's just out of the ordinary. They have they have American Border Patrol in the Toronto airport. So they have this whole other section of the airport that if you're flying to America, I was going to say back, but maybe it's to America. Then like you go through Border Patrol and then when you get, you know, like where I was going to Dallas, like there's no no uh, you don't have to go through that big glass hallway to, to the Border <laughs> Patrol people. And, right. you know, as as you know, I have a uh, I have a border entry thing. So you just go up to this kiosk. And it like scans your passport and then your fingers and takes a picture of you, which is always annoying because I always forget to look up because I always want the best picture possible. And then you just pass by the, uh, you know, the fully like crew cut tattooed out guy who looks like he just rolled out of the army and he just waves you on and takes your little ticket. And then also another thing I noticed the uh, the Canadian Border Patrol, the most stylish Border Patrol you will ever see. They all have really? like those uh, those Macklemore haircuts, you know, where you like shave the sides, right. and and you've got like the the styled thing on top. They are some styling Border Patrol folks. That is a pretty bold claim. 
Cote to make that I, I suspect that we're going to have some feedback and I would appreciate on the uh, on the Twitters to yeah. uh, if you think they, that is the most stylish. I was I've always been impressed with Europeans who mm. make me feel worse about myself who all seem to actually be good at their jobs and, and, and look the part. Now, that may be, the, you know, like like a, a nice a nice well put beret that can always that's that's <laughs> a good look with a big assault rifle like hanging out underneath you. But right. I think I think. Let me let me contextualize. Of all the border patrol people I've seen, the Canadian ones looked like the hippest and most welcoming. They they were they were just like they were yeah. doing a good job like welcoming people to Canada. Another fun fact about Canada is uh there's only like 32 million people in Canada. Mm. Which is kind of crazy. Like there's more people in California and I think Texas where I live has like about 26 million people and you got like 330 or so million in all of America. I, I looked this up because I was driving from the airport with yet another exciting technology, you know, Uber, depending on uh, your position, how exciting that is. But it, it was pretty nice just to like not have to wait in line and just go. Uh, it's always, always great. And now they email your receipts to concur, which is also handy. Anyways. Uh, he was telling me that he used to drive a, a truck cross country and he drove across Canada and it's just like empty. There's just nothing there, uh, which, which he was saying it's such a big, big country and not that many people. So you look it up and sure enough, not a lot of people in Canada, which is, which is interesting. I don't know what you do with that, but, uh, they got a lot of land. I guess they much do. of it is frozen, but it's, it's a, it's a big old area up there. And sure is. We love our Canadians. Yeah, and they put they put gravy on on waffle fries and other fries. I don't I don't know what's not to like. And a lot of good things in the, in that sentence. Indeed. Well, going just a little bit further south than mm-hmm. Canada, it looks if if I I noticed and, and you noticed this also that uh, Amazon bought this little company Cloud Nine that has a cloud based yeah. IDE and and it was making me remember I think. At the tail end of when I was an analyst at uh, at Redmonk, there was like this trend of in-browser IDEs. And I think the Eclipse Foundation like was working on a project and there were a few other things. And who else? It was another company. I forget what they yeah, were you called. Had, uh, yeah, you've got Code Envy. You've got that was, Cloud9. Yeah, you've got an Eclipse J, this kind of you know open source thing that's recently come out. That was, Yeah, it seemed super hot a few years ago. And now everyone, I think, has figured out their right play in that space. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is. Uh, I, I think I think a little back in the past, back when I was looking at it, it seemed kind of clunky. But but I can see that nowadays it would actually be just fine. And and I, I like you know one of the things I remember when I was talking with the Code Envy people that was interesting is it's kind of a little shade of like the pitch for virtual desktops or whatever. But there are uh, there's interesting things that happen when everything's on the server side as far as managing the desktop and the total compute that you have available. Uh, so I don't know. I've, I haven't looked into that, that space a lot recently, but it's, it's, uh, as my mother would say, interesting. It seems like there's a lot of, a lot going on. Have you, have you looked at IDE based, uh, cloud, like what browser based IDE things recently? What's your I impression have. of it? I mean, it's, it's a smart buy for Amazon. Cause as you can imagine, there's very, there's fewer and fewer parts of the stack that they don't own. Yeah. So if they can also make the development experience something they own, like, hey, run the browser here, and hey, guess what? Developing Lambda functions now is super crazy easy because now it's all in our in our provided IDE or what have you. You can imagine that they're trying to even simplify those people who don't have big heavyweight desktops or the compute power to you know, do continuous integration builds with 14 different services at the same time. That's actually where Code Envy pivoted because instead of being a cloud-based IDE, they're focused more on portable desktop environments or development environments. So get this containerized dev environment where you can go set off integration tests and they just go spin up containers and return results and 
collaborate with other people. As you mentioned, this was kind of a clunky space for a little while because it always felt like it was a just an inferior version of a decent desktop IDE. And so mm. I think many of them have evolved now with more responsive UIs and these other functions to do more, take advantage of server-side processing. Still doesn't always solve the problem of, heck, how do I reference a local dependency? Or how do I integrate with on-prem systems when this thing is elsewhere? So there can be challenges, but you know, for Amazon, it's probably a good buy. You know, virtual desktops, I think people love and hate them. At the same time, you still like having more than just a dumb machine. Yeah. But you can tell there's a lot of benefit in this space, as, especially as we have more of these cloud-based dev platforms that now actually having the IDE close to it could be a cool way to quickly bang out a boot app or a Lambda function or other things when it's all kind of integrated, not required integrated, but comfortably integrated. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting. Like I've noticed, I mean, it's it's obviously a uh, whatever logic fallacy is you've got a, a, a bum sample set. But I, I've noticed in in talking with with my friends who are still coders and, and definitely uh, when I look at our our platform architects and other people demoing that very few sometimes people use IntelliJ for demoing like someone like a Josh Long uses that. But people use a wide variety of non-traditional IDEs, whether it's something like Adam from GitHub or or other text editors. And and it it's it sort of makes you think that uh, all that horsepower you traditionally would think you need for an IDE maybe mm-hmm. maybe isn't always needed so much, which you know gets right. to another thing. Like I'm I'm always you know, I'm always waiting for the return of like uh, waiting, like I'm sitting on my thumbs. But I'm always I'm always curious about if the idea of rapid application development or rad, as I like to say it, will will come back. And and to your point, right? Like if you have like uh, so called serverless programming and all these things where you're sort of like you're 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 not a lot closer but you're you're close to the equivalent of excel macros versus like full on application <laughs> right. coding like it does it is interesting to think about you know if you just sort of right click here to like program something and then because the back end is cognizant of like all these enterprise needs maybe it does do all mm-hmm. this like enterprise tracking so it's not like crazy out of band stuff but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, It'd be interesting if, if someone logs into an application, and I guess Salesforce is a little bit like this. Someone logs into yeah. an application, and if they have the right rights and everything, they can actually like program it. They can do the old, we can finally close the loop on the idea of on a wiki, you can always just click edit and change it and, and do something at the, uh, the programming, in the programming world. No, I think you're right. Like that, that's an interesting thing. And you, you touch on an interesting point is that as well, cloud gets sold as, hey, the benefit is the elasticity when you have bursty, unpredictable workloads. Doesn't that describe most client-side development? Like when I'm building apps on my machine, yeah. most of the time CPU is doing nothing. I build and compile my app and everything go, explodes for a few seconds. Like it's the definition of I just need compute temporarily. So, you know, marrying these things in the cloud without sacrificing connectivity or some of the performance enhancements, or frankly, many of these IDEs are super functional. I I use probably 4% of a decent IDE nowadays because I just use it to basically build stuff, not all the cool functions that get buried in. So for most people, maybe a lowest common denominator actually solves a lot of problems, especially when they start pairing. And now with Mm. many of these tools, they actually support code, you know, real time, like Google Docs style code development where I can have somebody looking and typing in the same function that I am right now. That's madness in one hand, but pretty awesome if I'm actually trying to pair with people that aren't sitting next to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's interesting. Like it, it, it'd be our, uh, the, our, our, our pivot labs, people are, are, you know, stridently into pair programming and they seem to be 
they like it in person, but I wonder, I wonder if uh, having some, I wonder what they've done as far as figuring out like back when there was sub ether edit and all these things where you've sort of got live coding on either end. That would be uh, yeah. We have to be a follow up podcast now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, because it is. It is like I mean, an- another thing you notice is when you go talk to these large organizations we were uh, fawning over early, fawning over the potential of earlier. Mm-hmm. They're they're basically like mm, co located work. What else you got for me? Because because that's not going to work, <laughs> right? It's it, it you know you you're always skating that edge beyond, b- between the uh, the old definition of of insanity uh, cliche and uh, and and also the the actual possibilities of doing something but it seems like when it comes to pair programming there's there's no end of potential to enable remote work versus having to be able to smell the other person <laughs> always valuable that's right put that put that in your surveys <laughs> yeah what else you got here. Well, it, it looks like uh, it, Google is expanding their, their cloud regions here. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, you know, I, this reminds me, I should go look this up, but I, I, I saw a, uh, a, a rundown recently that said that the, I think the IBM soft layer, like public cloud has the most mm-hmm. geographic points, even beyond Amazon. But, but uh, I don't know, that, that seems like it might count. be accurate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've got probably a lot of other hosting and, and services. I mean, I think Amazon has, or I'm sorry, Microsoft has the most cloud regions, cloud data centers available today as they, they've gotten, I mean, a few dozen now. They've really gone nuts with that. But I think surprisingly from this one, most people go, I mean, when I read the news, it was, Google doesn't have one on the West Coast? Like, that was the first one I saw. Like, really? I, I didn't even realize that. I and mean, I think it reminds you, first of all, that Google, the cloud, is different sometimes than Google, clearly the compute engine and search service, which has data centers everywhere. So those are not always one and the same. But, you know, good outreach. I mean, you're seeing more now in, in India. I think IBM just kicked one up in Pakistan. So you're seeing, at this point, you wonder there's a saturation point where you hit most major geographies where for many Com- you know, many companies, you're not more than a few hundred miles away from a cloud data center. It, we're not there yet. But it's it, interesting to see this expansion and, and Google continuing to expand. Obviously, Amazon keeps going. So does Microsoft. So does IBM and others. Is At some point, do you hit peak cloud or do you just keep going into micro clouds or other smaller locations to hit more out of the way places that might not require a full on cloud node, but people who still want low latency connection to compute somewhere. Mm. It'll be interesting to see who who decides to change how they deliver cloud or do we just keep going mega data centers yeah yeah it, it says uh here here in the article we'll put a link to it, it says that they they had some they have a data center and they have data centers in south carolina belgium and taiwan mm. so i guess i guess they if that's accurate they have a lot of places to expand to <laughs> yeah we, we're not done yet all right everybody's got a lot of space and for us i mean again that's selfishly in the pivotal side what's nice is is, is pick your your host then. So, I mean, if you'd like where Google Cloud is, fantastic, run PCF on Google Cloud. If you prefer Azure's locations, go there. It's nice to have that choice where you just kind of pick whose infrastructure, but then sometimes whose geography from a data sovereignty perspective or latency or performance perspective. Yeah, I mean, it just just anecdotally and, and, and stripping the names out, it's, it's, um, it's interesting when you go talk with Pivotal customers that how I mean, I mean, there's definitely like most people either deploy on their own infrastructure or on Amazon. I would say those are like the top two. But there's uh, it's curious to see what kind of companies and there there's there's a uh, there's a uh, I don't know, a material handful of them, so to speak, who who choose to deploy on Azure or as we talked about before or or even Google. And, and it's uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Like, the pretty regular, normal companies are are trying to wangle that out and and make it work on deploying all those different clouds. So there's definitely mm-hmm. there's definitely pull for for all of that stuff. And then and then also, I know you're recently familiar with a lot of this. I we'll, we'll have to see how this weights them with the infrastructure as a service magic quadrant. Adding right. adding in more things that just, they're going to have to recompute recompute their spreadsheets. You know, they, absolutely. They, they, those gardener people, they should those people they should have uh, they should have some like interactive spreadsheets you can go fill out. That would be fun. Like, what if they had this, and then you can see it uh, move all around. Of course, for subscribers only. They got, they got to make their money. <laughs> That's right. That's it's key behind the paywall. In, indeed. So the the last item that we had, and I, I was just uh, reading up on this this morning. Uh, is it looks like someone's finally purchased Yahoo. There was, if, if I remember right, I, I, I collected together a bunch of uh, notes on this that, that we'll put a link to over on my blog at Cote.io. But uh, it looks like there was, I, I'm guessing there was kind of a bidding war between Verizon and AT&T at the end from all, all the rumors that, that I was reading. And then, of course, there was, there was also someone, uh, I think it was the former CEO from uh, Intuit, was interested in it. And there was, there was some PE firm and, you know, in the past, I think people like Microsoft and Google have been interested, but uh, it, it's confirmed and, and it'll close sometime in 2017. But assuming all the fine print and government stuff goes well, it looks like Verizon is going to buy the, uh, let me see, I'll, I'll botch this up, but you've got what they call the core assets of Yahoo, which are basically what we think of as Yahoo, all of the internet stuff. And they're buying it for like $4.83 billion or something. Right. And then, and then as far as I can figure, and I didn't really check all this stuff out very thoroughly because I was just having some coffee while I was doing this, but it looks like if you, so Verizon also bought AOL, which gets them a lot of, um, other stuff and mm-hmm. it looks like if you kind of rank by eyeballs they're like maybe three or two or maybe even one they're in the top three of like dot com sites to use a really old term sure. but but if you rank by actual revenue from ads it's more like i don't know three or four or something like that they don't they actually get a very small slice of the leftovers from google and facebook so yeah i mean I, it seems like like having having worked in MA stuff like i can see that the uh basically the 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 rationale as they say would be like well the way you make money on the internet is that so mm-hmm. we better buy a bunch of that no <laughs> right? i know like, i mean and, 2000, and build that up 2002 richard is really geeking out over this deal cuz that's <laughs> and this would have been really awesome i mean hey 5 billion dollars is not chump change you just wonder as you think back microsoft offered what 44 billion yeah. a few years back and heck yahoo could have bought google for a, a million dollars whatever it was Back in the late 90s. So all sorts of revisionist history. It's so unfair to look at those things and say, what if? Because sure, if Microsoft had bought Yahoo, maybe they would have gone crazy and done amazing stuff. So it's impossible now to, to mockingly look back and say, look at all these bad disasters. Because, you know, in time, those those things probably made plenty of contextual sense. But Yahoo is an interesting poster child for that company who really grew up with the rest of the Internet and, and kind of an end of an era. Yeah, and and I th- I think you know for for me I think nowadays you see uh you see you see a lot of ten plus year old tech companies trying to figure out what to do basically, <laughs> and and I think I think it'll be I, I don't know I probably actually won't pay attention to this but but in theory it would be interesting and, and it's all my curiosity to kind of watch what Verizon does with it uh, with this this part of their business over the next three to five years because sure. You know, to the point, you know, the the positive version uh, kind of, of of what you were just alluding to is like, that's pretty cheap 
Like, mm-hmm. like that, you, you pick up some, some very well-known assets that have, like, I, I think if I remember, like, Yahoo Mail had, like, 230 million active monthly users or something. And, oh, and you still have Tumblr and you still have all these other yeah. things. So you have all these things. And, and if, if, if Verizon can basically run the business side better, uh, which maybe they could. Or maybe they couldn't. Acquisitions are notoriously terrible, <laughs> like like on average, so to speak. They they usually don't pan out too well. But yeah, it, it's uh, along with several other companies. It's it'd be interesting to see how they come out the other side of uh, reconditioning, if you will. Absolutely. Or or, or, or the the uh, what was the the name of that movie? The the Golden Pond era of of their life. <laughs> what was the one with the little aliens that come and like uh, give the old people extra life and they rearrange all the tiling oh, in the lobby? Is that Cocoon? What you yeah, thinking maybe of? it was Cocoon. I'm thinking Mars Attack when you say little aliens, but I don't think that's it. Yeah, maybe there's a whole lot. Yeah, maybe it was Cocoon. I think, well, yeah, I'll have to look this up. This, uh, Put it in the show notes. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, there, there's there's some more wrap-up of that. And there, there's I think there's actually a pretty good, uh, I forget the guy's name, but there's, there's a good article, uh, a lengthy analysis by this guy at Vox, who uh, is kind of going over the history of Yahoo and uh, a little bit of the rationale for why why it would be purchased. That's well uh, worth looking into so next up yeah we wanted to talk about kind of the theme for the week is circle of software so if you're not familiar with this concept uh our vp of engineering ansi did a presentation gosh was it back in january i think at the kickoff and frankly that was a presentation that helped seal the deal for me to join pivotal back in the spring is i really just got a good sense of the company's purpose and vision and what we were going after and some of the the sense of what he talks about there and we'll link to the YouTube video in the show notes was in general was a where is is PCF and 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 cloud going here with Pivotal and he introduced this idea of a circle of software and you know the idea there is that you know as you as teams build software you've got these stages you've got ideas of course they come from whatever customers or internal need or whatever those ideas are you put those into some sort of prioritization and planning process that turns into coding that turns into a deployment process that de- turns into running on a platform that becomes something that you monitor and constantly collect collect feedback on and then feeds back into ideas so this isn't revolutionary stuff that's not you know what I think I've basically described a good agile sprint or even a waterfall process to some extent that is not we're not you know breaking new ground here but I think it's thinking about that in terms of the software, you know, that is the life cycle of a stage of software. And what does it mean to have the technologies there? What does it mean to iterate in that way? What are those technologies? Does anybody provide all of those together? Should one company provide all those together? And if so, what would we imagine that integration experience to be like? And honestly, talk through a bit of the casual experience when he covered up from a pivotal perspective is sure. I have crazy ideas. Some of that have, may have even come out from working with Pivotal Labs. I then use something like Pivotal Tracker to connect these things. And maybe I have an experience where I go, I want a new project. And what we do is we spin up something in Pivotal Tracker. We create a Git repo somewhere. We stand you up a maybe in a cloud IDE, a dev sandbox that is already loaded with Spring Boot. It's working with Concourse to do continuous deployment to a PCF environment that's monitored closely using PCF metrics. And all that feeds back into the cycle, the next iteration, that that's one flavor of a pivotal story, but it can't be exclusive. And so I saw it'd be fun for you and I to talk a little bit about what we think of that circle. What are some of those tech that we see they are pretty popular at those stages? And then where do we see that friction between some of those? Because some cases you don't want to 
I don't know, you want actual solutions to real problems. You don't want to manufacture problems. Where where is their actual problem in those handoffs in that circle? You know, what do we think of the landscape today? Well, yeah, what 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 I liked about about that the concept is uh, it mirrors like a lot of the uh, I don't know if it mirrors, but it, it's 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 an, an example of the conversation I end up having with with a lot of people out there in the field, which is uh, this sounds kind of condescending, but it's like <laughs> this is how software is done, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, and and I think by by this is how software is done. You alluded to it, but. It's sort of like if you look at the entire software process end to end, uh, it looks kind of simple from the get go, or especially retros- like retrospectively in hindsight when you explain it. But a lot of people like don't think about the full cycle of things, and I think I think that's a consequence of two things at least. One of them is just like um, you know, like we were describing when we were we were opening. There's a lot of organizations who, at the business level, are are looking to do software and improve the way their software is done. And they're trying to do it in a way that isn't just sort of like as a tool, like they want it as the core thing that, that they, how they interact with their customers or their users. And what I think about here is like, you know, most people like will think about software as well, the straw man, straw person I'm constructing of like, Oh, I've got email or I've got an application that I use or ERP or all these things. And they, they kind of know that it's sort of like this, uh, uh, this, this like quicksand of like spending and schedules to customize it. And it's a little like dodgy, but there's, I don't think there's really been a very mainstream understanding of, of how software is produced. And so like you, you went through all the different phases and it's, it's especially the feedback part. Like it gives people an idea of, I guess, how like creative and open ended software can be and analogously like, I forget if I've gone over it in in this uh, in this podcast, but the analogy I always use is like uh, it's like those old submarine movies that like you would see in the eighties, or at least I would, where like there's always a major plot point where something breaks in the submarine, whatever it is, and you like you know you've got like two hours until you run out of air, so everyone goes to their bunk and they <laughs> fall asleep, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and and then the engineer like you know they go to the officers' quarters and they knock off all the tables and they spread out this big schematic. Mm-hmm. And then they isolate this one little part in the schematic and they're like, oh, we just need to go like put a bolt on it or, or you know, whatever. Or, or maybe the more extreme version is like someone has to like sacrifice himself by going into the nuclear reactor right. to like adjust something. <laughs> so and, you're telling me software is like U571. Exactly. Really and, exa- awesome. and, and I, think, I think a lot of people view software like that where it's sort of like, oh, we've got this schematic and it's just kind of like hard work to go in there. And so, like, they've got to or find it's prescriptive. I, exactly. I mean, cause, exactly. Because I hate the term software factory. Exactly. To imply that this is some sort of assembly line thing that I can just hand a schematic to any sort of pool of people to crank out code is so condescendingly silly because software is often more art than science, unfortunately. And that's right. And, and then they, there's the other side. I mean, you know, there's the. Uh, I forget the name of it, but there's a whole website dedicated to it where you've got that cartoon of like the uh, the tree swing that the user asked for, and then all, all these different silos. Like one of them makes a roller coaster. It's sort of like what the business analyst wanted and the QA people wanted, and then finally it's like what the customer actually wanted was a tire swing, not like a wood swing. And and like that's the other thing is in, unless you like know the full end to end cycle, it's hard to come out the other end with software that you actually want. And then so. 
I, I think I think the other thing that's interesting and, and you know, uh, the, 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 the idea of the circle of software is like, and so what you should do is pay attention to all these phases and how you tool them and how they tie together and all work with each other. And I think what I started to see back when I was an analyst and a little bit when I was at Red Monk, but then when I went to 451, uh, was that companies like ourselves and others are starting to basically base their product portfolio on that entire cycle of things. So instead of just being like one component of it, like an operating system or like, uh, I don't know, network configuration, they're more concerned with enabling that whole loop of software that you have. Because really, like, if if you don't enable that whole loop, you spend so much time integrating and making that stuff work together that you become more of like a master of duct tape than really <laughs> like a master of the, the output of your software. Right. Well, I mean... To that point, though, I guess maybe controversially, if you're not committed, if you're committed to doing projects and not products and services, then you shouldn't worry about this. Because if you're not going to have a feedback loop, if you're just, you know, putting together an 18-month project to ship out the latest version of ERP or to crank out a custom-built CRM solution, maybe just do what works for you. Because don't over-optimize on some of these stages. If you do, you know, three deployments in the life cycle of this thing and that's done and then you all move on, some of this would feel like overkill, at least to me personally. Who cares about automated deployment if you do it twice? Yeah. I mean, you're not. So, I mean, to some extent, these are great ideas. Don't incorporate them unless you're willing to actually take on the cultural change of saying software is a living, breathing thing for most every company. And you have to think about it as iteratively updated, not I've released it and I've moved on. And now maybe that's DevOps, maybe that's Agile, whatever we want to call it, that this sort of fits into a model that says any smart company, whether these are the Fortune 10 companies we will work with to a smaller shop, to a startup is this is awesome. The sort of circle of software concept is powerful when you want to live in that way of working. It does not fit if all you have is a stable of monoliths that get updated on occasion and user feedback doesn't matter. Yeah. No, I, I think I think I think there's something highly accurate to that, which is uh in in, in unless you go, let's call it most of the way, then it's sort of not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like if, right. if you, if you, exactly. if you locally optimize on one component of this full cycle, then you won't be optimizing the entire system. And, and there becomes a question of like, was it worth optimizing that one point? And mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, it's easy to take that sentiment as like, and therefore don't change, <laughs> but it's, it's more, right. it's more of pushing people to realize that there's a lot more work than just optimizing one section of it. Right. So exactly right. So it's sort of like you could really get a really good idea of, of how you run your requirements and like do your PMO office stuff really well and just fix that up. So you always knew exactly where a requirement was in the cycle. But if if you're not if, if you're not optimizing the way that you're uh, you're doing your coding and your testing and your ability to deploy and collect a, you know data from how users are using it in a feedback loop, then it's sort of like a lot of uh, I don't know. It's almost like I've got a really strong right arm and the rest of your body is just like <laughs> Cheeto fed. Like, yeah, I mean, and it's okay to just still do local optimizations from time to time. So I don't think we're poo pooing saying, hey, if you can't make the whole shebang, screw it, live in the dark ages. But I think there's something about look, you've got to be willing to say, this is where I'm trying to get to. And it may take me a while and I might have to optimize each group independently until I can finally say the whole pipeline feels better. But 
this idea that says we're doing DevOps because devs can push to production, that, that's typically not remotely enough because is your finance team aligned? Is your project planning aligned? Is your monitoring? And like all those things come into actually having a well-oiled software delivery machine. And if you're just focusing on one, as you mentioned, you know, I, in my, my previous job as working with a cloud team, we had spent months using an unnamed configuration management platform to automate some, some data center build outs. And it was great, but we, in the end of the day, we probably saved a few hours for something that we did a half a dozen times a year. Was it worth spending months on that? I don't know. Did that make as much sense as maybe doing something else? So sometimes thinking about the payback of what you're doing and figuring out, are you ready for that? Do you need that sort of function? Can help you figure out where in this circle of software to really invest your time. And where's your biggest clogs in your pipeline? Start tackling some of those versus improving those things that won't actually unclog you. Yeah, it, rem- it reminds me of a uh, when was this? Maybe the the there was there was a good talk uh, from Damon Edwards at the 2015 DevOps Days Austin, basically just going over like how to apply value stream mapping to software. And you know, I mean, that's a that's a as I like to say, uppercase L lean tool where you uh, map out end to end from thinking about some piece of software to actually delivering it and having an end user use it, and then it's implied, you know, the the feedback, the the loop where you're continually improving it. But I I, th- I think that's an area that uh, we don't talk. That's, that's a tool we don't talk enough about in in the mm. software world. Is in the I don't know maybe in management consulting land they do. But hmm. but basically, you know, the good thing to start with is whatever the the business process you're doing and then map out everything that's in there. And then to your point, almost to prioritize the bottlenecks that you'll be removing and the optimizations that you'll be doing, because sure, removing two hours a year is, you know, better than, as I used to say, a stick in the eye. But like maybe there's a way you can remove two hours a week or so, or something else, right. and and until you have that full end to end process, it's hard to uh, f- prioritize exactly what to remove. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned earlier as we think about software as a broader discipline than just here's a bunch of you know bearded geeks in a in a hallway slinging out some code somewhere. That instead, this is something that involves increasingly diverse teams of different sort of interest areas and says, look, what you just described there is a big lean idea of saying, let's elevate constraints. Let's remove bottlenecks. That's something that you can even get your Six Sigma geeks going on about when you think about software and optimization. So hopefully a lot of what DevOps has been about take software out of just being, you know, something that gets pulled together on projects to something that you think about org wide, because again, you look at you know, Cote, we look at our biggest customers and, and they're powered by software, even if they're in healthcare or automotive or in financial services. So this is not a cost center. This is something that everybody can be involved in to make sure you build the right stuff. So this sort of model, I think, is very inclusive to a lot of folks. But I'd be interested in your take on where do you see, I mean, of these stages in here, which ones do you think have the biggest bottlenecks? I mean, where are those ones that maybe you wouldn't spend a ton of your time over-optimizing right now, even prematurely optimizing versus those ones that you see that say, you know, gosh, this always, you know, when I talk to people, this always sounds like a pain in the neck, this step between A and B. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, uh, basically like getting it into production and, and then also to a limited extent, like managing it in production. I mean, that, that's, I, I think that's a big deal, um, in, in, the with respect to the fact that people don't do that as well as they should nowadays. <laughs> like, I think, I think once you get the proper tools and things in place, it's, it's a lot less cumbersome than it is, but 
I mean, this is like a boring old answer that spawned like, you know, trillions of dollars in IT spend. But it's just like <laughs> configuration management's really annoying. <laughs> like, yeah, like getting even getting stuff to prod. I mean, we, we just saw a survey a couple months ago. Twenty five percent of shops are doing CI at this point. Like, there's a ton of room to still go to saying, "I just finished code, exactly. so it can go somewhere that I can test it." Like, that is not even remotely a solved problem so, yet. Yeah. So I, I think I think uh, I don't know exactly how to describe that nowadays, but the idea mm-hmm. of how do I take this hunk of code and get it reliably running the way I intended it to in another thing. Right. Like out of dev, out of staging, out of whatever. And how do I run it in production? And and that's difficult because traditionally there's a, a handoff. Ooh, handoff. The, the bad word or phrase <laughs> of, of like the configuration and how it's set up and all of that right. kind of stuff. And what, what what's always delightful to point out sometimes. I mean, sometimes it doesn't like give them an epiphany, but if you're doing things in a very cloud native fashion, there is a bit of a handoff. But there's not that much of a handoff because you're running on the same infrastructure in in uh, or and even the same platform in dev staging and production, right? You're just kind of pointing it at different areas, and I and I think there's a there's an interesting ability to strip out a bunch of the difference in in that handoff, and and whenever you reduce that reduce that variability, that's what like makes that that better. And then and then of course there's the annoyance of just like monitoring it, and if something goes wrong. So I think I think that's the biggest thing is like moving from let's call it dev to production and then the second mm-hmm. biggest problem and you see this like in surveys all the time so it must be true but is basically just like getting people to tell you what it is they want which you could call prioritization or requirements management or or whatever that is and that's that's like an endless cycle of suckiness <laughs> like that's it a is. really it's a really hard problem to solve because it's kind of thankless like mm-hmm. you don't uh, it, it, with very few exceptions, like the idea of being a good product manager or designer in the all-encompassing sense isn't always celebrated as much as the other right. things. And it's 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 a difficult job. And I think I think the way that gets addressed nowadays kind of gets back to the point of like uh, software is hard and here's the full cycle of how you do software. So there's more of an awareness of how important requirements management is. <laughs> But then the other thing is like once you narrow down to a weekly or less cycle of deployment, um, I I think that adds a lot of interesting stress that becomes helpful stress to the system of requirements gathering. That you're almost forcing the I'll keep calling them product manager. You're you're forcing the product manager, whoever comes up with requirements, to almost do a painfully small amount. <laughs> <laughs> of of right. requirements per cycle, which I think has some interesting effects on on uh, fixing up requirements. But it does. I, I think I think if you, if you were to, I, I think nowadays the and and maybe even over time, like the Standish Chaos reports, always a little fuzzy about its trustworthiness. But like when you look at those surveys of what causes software fail failure, inevitably it's that like the requirements were bad, right? Like right. Something was poor with that. So that's that's the other huge area. And iterative feedback, I mean, I think that's where agile people really hammer on is because, you know, for most people, why are we asking whatever we call it the business? I hate that term, but, you know, the idea of other software stakeholders saying, this is what I want. Why are we assuming they know exactly what they want? I mean, it's, exactly. I don't know if software is like pornography where you have to see it to know what it is. That's the Supreme Court answer. Uh, but 
there's something to it, right? I need to see what we're talking about. And then we could say, you know what, that, that, no, that's not right. You're, you built what I asked for, but that's not it. And if I came out of that after 18 months, you'd want to kill yourself. If I came out of that of a weak software sprint, we'd say, all right, let's sit down and figure out what it is that you did like or didn't like, and let's iterate on that. And so, as you said, I mean, it was a very keen point there when I was running product in my last job that it was good to see the teams constantly purposely try to shrink their release window because that would force them to find areas that were inefficient, like regression testing or requirements management, like you said, where all of a sudden the product manager had to be much better about upfront understanding acceptance criteria, the requirements, have that queued up well ahead of time because I can't spend two days debating sprint contents when I have a week-long sprint. Like that's a horrible waste of time. Exactly. So you can do that if you have a three-month sprint. Who cares? You spend two days on requirements. What's it matter? Boy, that is super wasteful when I'm trying to ship every week. So it's a really cool pressure point that forces you to get better and lets you accept the fact that you might throw away stuff after every sprint because you didn't get it right. But it's better to do that constantly than assume that you can magically lock requirements and then start development. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a uh, a good uh, Texas startup CEO story where like I, the uh, the, the, the first startup I worked for, we had like a very, very awesomely classic Texas CEO. And I remember he was he was talking to one of our customers. He's like, check this out. I've got this magic whiteboard. I just write stuff on this whiteboard and those boys over there in the next room, they code it. And tomorrow it's in production. You know, like essentially like, which, which because we were on like, because we were a bunch uh-huh. of high school people didn't, you know, didn't know any better back in the CGI bin days. And like, you know, there would be an idea and you would put it in production and well, I mean, you would code it up and put it in production. Now, that's half of it. Right. And and the way I think about that is I forget where I got this notion from, but something I was reading a while ago pointed out that like software is incredibly um uh, fungible. It's, it's, it, you know, it's agile. You can make it do whatever you want. Now you can also unintentionally build up so much technical debt and just like swampiness that you can't make it do anything. Cause you're like stuck essentially. So you've got to guard against that. But basically that's the thing about software is like, it can kind of defy a lot of rules of reality. Like, it's not like, right. you know, it's not like the physical world where you can't create an Escher hallway of just <laughs> impossible illusions. But in software, you can do kind of whatever you want as long as you write it correctly. And so now, so you can have that magic whiteboard. But I think the important thing that like back in the late 90s, the uh, was not implied is like, and also I'm going to have a lot of bonkers ideas and they're also going to code it incorrectly. But we can go back and fix it. <laughs> and so this this sort of like humbleness of like, yeah, we don't really know exactly what's going on. So what's important is that we build in a process that allows us to make mistakes and exactly. not have that bring things down and also learn from and correct those mistakes. And I think that's one of the huge philosophic things that hopefully has has really crystallized and hopefully is percolating. And mm-hmm. it's crystallized over the past five years is like software is really fungible. Uh, and we're also allowed to make mistakes because it can be, it's resilient. We can roll things back. And the only way we're really going to make it good is if we do make mistakes and we study things like we've got to get rid of this idea that we're going to do things perfectly the first time. And then we right. can learn and improve things. Yeah. And I think that that touches on, there are a couple of other areas I would point out where I think there's, there's friction. I think your deployment one's spot on, but you know, I have more appreciation now, I think for bootstrapping a project is going from, I'd like to start something to actually getting all the machinery in place so all the devs are coding on it. And so I do like the idea of thinking, well, how do I 
kind of go from I'm ready to go to spinning up whatever my project planning tool is to my dev workspace to the right libraries to the right services, the right things I can deploy to. You know, I don't want to have a three-week warm-up while I get Vagrant images figured out right. and I'm, you know, figuring out my Git repo structure. So I can see a lot of value. And I don't think anyone is totally solving this yet. We mentioned Code Envy and companies up front that are trying to help with that. But I don't know if I've seen anyone totally solve that go from zero to productive developer on some sort of bigger project in, in a matter of minutes or hours. I think that's a friction area that you know I'd love us to help solve, and I know we're doing some work there. And then the other one, I think the monitoring side is, is you know, I was just on a call this morning with one of our monitoring partners, and we talked about the fact that I think nowadays nobody cares, somebody cares. At most developers do not care about the busyness of their server or maybe even the busyness of their service. They care about the app service as a whole. Like yeah. how is my, as you say, you know, my airline service working? It's made up of a million components, but what really matters is the health, the outside in, inside out health of that service because other things are changing all the time underneath containers and services and hard drives. And so thinking about that differently, collecting feedback, monitoring it, and then also taking in human feedback, as you said, I mean, it's also finding out someone didn't like this or no one is using this feature. And how do I take all this sort of data and turn that back into ideas that feed an iteration? I don't see that as a solved problem yet. Again, a lot of interesting areas potentially for machine learning and data analytics and other ways to glean insight from usage patterns and data consumption. But that doesn't seem like that's a done problem and still there's friction there. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll have to write this down. We should, we should talk about monitoring uh, at, in a future episode because, you know, that's, that's like the software I used to write when I was at uh, BMC a while ago. And uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, a meeting I had uh, two weeks ago where uh, someone brought us in, one of our customers brought us in to kind of go over how they were doing things to basically be like, what do you make of that? Right. Like to, to give them some input on it. And one of the, one of the, the monitoring insights that they had was that they primarily cared about exactly what you were saying as, as we used to call it synthetic user mo uh, monitoring, or I even right, have it wrong, right. but transact synthetic transaction monitoring. And Back, back in my day when I had uh, less gray hair or none, the prototypical example would be buying a book, right? Like search for a book, put it in your shopping cart, give it your payment details and make sure you can buy it. And the sort of conceit of, of user uh, of transaction monitoring is exactly what you're saying is like we could monitor everything, including like disk space and CPU, but really we should just make sure we can make money. Like, you know, if <laughs> right. if basically our right. data center is on fire and yet mysteriously we're still like selling books, then maybe we don't care that it's on fire. I mean, that's a ludicrous example, but it's sort of like, um, you know, getting down to the root cause of problems can sort of be helpful uh, in, in many cases. Fact, right. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Do forensics. That stuff matters a ton. But a it doesn't necessarily light me up right now in terms of priority. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then what you really want, like to, I, I was putting that the wrong way, but like it, you probably don't want to build up to knowing that your Christmas tree is red, essentially, of all your alerts. Right. You want to start at the top and say, like, what's the user experience like? And then once things start to go yellow and red, it's good to go down and dig into the details. Now, of course, if you know that if you run out of disk space on the database cluster, then things will go bad. That's probably a good idea to monitor that. But like, you know, it, it's 
it's not like back when I used to do things where you, it, basically the, the technique was monitor everything, <laughs> right? Like get, get the, get the MIB for the thing you're monitoring and just like monitor all that. Cause you're probably going to need it. But that seems like a, uh, a pretty good way of going about doing monitoring. And, and I think also why log collecting is so popular because logs are one easy to get and they're good for like after the fact monitoring, uh, in sort of near real time versus like thoroughly monitoring all your, your wingdings essentially. Well, that, that, I think I think uh, I, I think the idea of the the circle of code or all these things it's it's a good uh, it's a rich vein for future topics to go over. So we'll, we'll have to touch on that some more in uh, absolutely coming episodes. So speaking of uh, making software, I think it's uh, it's next week that we're finally going to have our Spring One Platform Conference, August first to fourth. It'll yeah. be very exciting. I'm I'm actually going to uh, Las Vegas later today for the GE Predix conference. So I'll uh, I'll do some some scouting, see how the city's doing, and I'll I'll, I'll get a, I'll be there twice in a row. And so, you know, I think there'll be uh, I, I'm I'm assuming maybe Ansi will have a talk himself, but there'll be people talking about all this the the point the points in the uh, the circle of software, you know. And, and we talked about it several times. You're both low low down on the uh, the the coding side, all the way up to uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than the business on the business side. And there's, there's, uh, there's some good tracks that'll be useful to see how people are solving these issues. So again, that's, uh, that's next week. And I think if you go to springoneplatform.io, you can read the full agenda. We've got everything. Yeah, you can even there. book your sessions now too with the scheduler. So get in there. Oh, I should go check that out. And right. I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but you can use the code pivotal hyphen cote hyphen 300 if you haven't registered already to get $300 off. And then you can like, you know, buy me a croissant or something. As in, with that extra three hundred dollars that you have, or some Vegas Serventer for three dollars. Ooh, that sounds lovely. Well, go to, go to one of those bars that's attached to a liquor store and just really class it up. That, that, that'll be good times. So, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. You can find us in SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com/slash Pivotal Conversations or iTunes or any place where you can search for podcasts. Uh, I think we're even in the Google Play Store now. And you can also go to pivotal.io slash podcast to find the show notes for this. And if if you get the chance, it would be great if you went into iTunes and and uh, left a rating for this or or a uh, a review, or if you just recommend it to people who you think it might be useful for. That's, that's always helpful to get the word out because the more people we have listening, the... Uh, the more happy it makes us, which Indeed. really, what else do you want than that? That's what we need. So with that, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see everyone next time.